recognizes the gentleman from Pennsylvania, Mr. Altmaier, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. And on this last day of 2012, I want to take a moment to highlight the work of a number of hardworking federal employees, people who... You are listening to the end of a political career. Without them, we could never do our jobs, and I want to thank those who have worked for me over the past six years. Ben Baraski, Olivia Benson, Evan Brennan, Mike Butler, Julie Kane, Richard Carbo, Jennifer Dale. Nick DiMichelli, Michelle Dorothy, Saron Emerson. That is Jason Altmaier, a good example of a vanishing Marine, the congressional centrist. Carolyn Kaler, Rachel Kaufman, Eric Comandant, Jennifer Krause, Chris Lombardi. Cody Lundquist, Greg Malnack, Caitlin Mack. Altmaier's political career crashed and burned in 2012, thanks to the great gerrymander of 2011. Emily Schmidt, Marielle Schwartz. His fate is a case study in how intense gerrymandering erodes the center of American politics and empowers the partisan fringes. I'm Chris Satulo, your guide to this exploration of the political practice that makes American government more gridlocked, more partisan, more dysfunctional than it would be otherwise. Sharon Warner, Rachel Heisler, Kara Toman. This is Draw the Lines, the podcast for people who want to slay the gerrymander. The people have the right to alter and reform. The people have the right to alter it. If you are a centrist or a moderate in a district that is overwhelmingly partisan, you really don't have a chance to win. There is no path to victory for Trump in Pennsylvania, except we won. He saw the word homicide and opened the door. It was the wrong door, but people were going to die. You have the uh, Speaker of the House at North Carolina who comes out and says, this is a 10-3 Republican congressional map because I don't think I can draw an 11-2 congressional map. And I thought, is this, is this legal? I mean, and who would say it? Who would say it in public like this? That basically strapped this case to a rocket. I feel like really almost anybody could draw a better map than that. You know, sometimes the answer to the problem is a really obvious one lying in front of you. It's the lines. Mr. Speaker, all of them were loyal to the district, and I read their names into the record to thank them for their service and loyalty to me, but especially for their service to the district. Yield back. What is gerrymandering? It's the dark art of drawing election lines in a way that locks in an unfair advantage to one class of candidates. That class might be just incumbents looking to hold on to their jobs, but more and more it tends to be one political party looking to lock in its power, no matter how the voters actually vote. Who am I? I'm a journalist. In my years working as an enemy of the people, including a stint as editorial page editor and columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, I've watched appalled as gerrymandering has gone nuclear and taken all the tendencies of Pennsylvania politics, that gridlock, that dysfunction, and made them much, much worse. 
I am also the son of an idealist. My dad was a second-generation immigrant and a classic greatest generation story. He served in Europe in the big one, came home with a war bride, went to college on the GI Bill, then lived a life of faith, family, and service. And he was a misty-eyed patriot. He raised me to be one, too. So here's the thing. Just once, I'd like to see my adopted state of Pennsylvania have a democracy that works the way my dad taught me it should. Just once, people. Just once. Having been raised on the romance of American democracy the way I was, James Madison is one of my main heroes. And I know he'd be appalled to see what gerrymandering has done to the system of checks and balances that was his greatest achievement. In fact, Madison was on fire to limit what he called faction, what we call partisan politics. On the other hand, I do have to confess that gerrymandering is also as old as the Republic. It's named after Elbridge Gerry, a signer of the Declaration of Independence who was also part of drawing some really funky lines in Massachusetts in 1811, back when he was governor there. But in the modern day, thanks to digital tech and big data, gerrymandering has never been worse, more diabolical, more damaging. But now, also, thanks to the ease and low expense of that tech, the fix to all this mess has never been more in reach for the average voter. So that's why this podcast. That's why the Draw the Lines initiative we're part of. Draw the Lines seeks to help voters grab back the pen to show that they're ready, willing, and able to take on this key task of democracy, the drawing of election lines. So welcome to our first episode. On this maiden voyage, we'll explore how the drawing of those diabolically partisan election maps affects the attitudes, behavior, and political fortunes of lawmakers. Other episodes in this first season will give you insight into how gerrymandering frustrates advocates looking for action out of Harrisburg and Washington on their key issues. We'll also go behind the scenes to tell how the Pennsylvania courts recently came to strike a landmark blow against the gerrymander. We'll do a postmortem on why an enormous grassroots effort in the Keystone State failed to end gerrymandering here. But to avoid depressing you too much, we'll also look at how efforts in other states have met much happier fates. And we'll tell you a bit more about Draw the Lines PA, that groundbreaking new initiative, which is putting into the hands of every willing voter the digital tools needed to draw their own valid election maps. Each episode, we'll tell in depth the story of one person whose life has been touched by the gerrymander. And that brings us back to Jason Altmeyer. I grew up an only child in a single-parent home, so very modest means. In a small town outside of Pittsburgh, about 22 miles up the Allegheny River, called Lower Burrow, which is in Westmoreland County, Uh, my mother was a schoolteacher, a public schoolteacher. She was not that politically active. She was a registered independent. So I remember being struck by the fact that when these elections would come up, a lot of them would be determined in the primary, these county commission races and local state house assembly seats. And she was never able to participate in the elections that mattered because she was a registered independent. I went to college at Florida State, and at the end, I was a political science graduate, and at the end of my college, I was in my last class on my last day, And my professor called me over and said, hey, Jason, come here. I want to ask you a question. And she said, there's a political campaign going on here 
in Florida, the guy's running for Congress. He is a Democrat running against the Republican incumbent. He probably has no chance to win, but I think you'd be good at it. You should check it out. So I went and interned on that campaign uh, all the way through the election, and he ended up winning. It was a guy named Pete Peterson, who was a uh, six-and-a-half-year prisoner of war in Vietnam and had a tremendous uh, credibility and military records. So he brought me up to D.C. with him and kind of stimulated my interest in federal politics and assigned me domestic issues, health care, education, social security, those kind of things as my portfolio. And I took a special interest in health care policy. And at night while I was working in Washington, I got a master's degree in health care administration And from that, eventually, I moved back home to Pittsburgh, where I worked for University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, UPMC, for seven years. And I never thought I would run for office, but... While jobs are leaving our country in record numbers, George Bush says sending jobs overseas makes sense for America. After the 2004 elections... He dishonored his country and, uh, more importantly, the people he served with. He just sold them out. Swift Boat Veterans for Truth is responsible for the content of this advertisement. I was a little bit frustrated with the fact that there was, in my opinion at that point in time, uh, much more extremism than needed to be in the Congress and in the district that I lived in. And I decided that we needed a candidate who was going to represent the middle and work with both sides and not just be there to speak for a political party, but to represent the district as a whole, and uh, was successful, ran running the first time, was reelected twice after that, and then I ran into gerrymandering, so I'm no longer there. When people nowadays talk wistfully about swing districts, competitive turf where each party has a fighting chance, they mean places like the old 4th District of Pennsylvania, where Altmaier made his political mark. The district as it existed when I first ran in uh, 2006 and and had throughout my career was a moderate-leaning district. It it voted Republican more often than not, but it was was a toss-up district because it had a mix. About half the district were the steel town kind of rust belt areas that people think of when they think of western Pennsylvania, communities like Newcastle and Beaver Falls and Aliquippa all the way along the Ohio and West Virginia border. Then reaching out across, I had 146 towns within this district. The other half of the district was the northern suburbs of Pittsburgh, the affluent communities. So more wealthy, business-oriented, Republican-leaning communities. And so when I decided to run, I was running against a congresswoman who was 44 years old and had been in office for uh, in public office for 16 years, Melissa Hart. That's great, Jane. Thank you. I'm Melissa Hart, and uh, very hardworking. Many people expected her to rise up uh, in politics and do bigger things. I defeated a Democrat incumbent in 1990 as a 28-year-old lawyer who everybody thought was a sacrificial lamb. Everybody. And she had won her previous two races by 28 points each. And President Bush had easily carried the district in both of his previous two races. So it looked very much like a long shot. But what I understood was if you can give those conservative Democrats a candidate that they're comfortable voting for, 
they're willing to vote on the Democratic side. And I think what you've seen all across the country is the Democrats' inability to appeal to those type of blue-collar voters. So what made Altmaier think an unknown like him had a chance against an entrenched young incumbent in a district that had gone red in the previous two presidential elections? There was a lot of frustration with the current leadership, both nationally in the country and with the incumbent congresswoman, who was perceived to be very popular. But I found that once you get below that first level, uh, that there was a little bit of disenchantment there. So... I felt like if I could make the case that I was someone who was willing to be a moderate, to work with both sides and legislate from the center rather than from the extreme, I, I had a pretty good chance to win. And I went back to my wife and I said, here are the reasons why I think I can win. Uh, this is what it's going to take. And I, I feel like I'm going to have to quit my job at UPMC and spend the next 17 months campaigning for a seat that nobody believes I can win and probably even less people are going to be paying attention to. She said, I don't like that plan. And uh, finally, I, I just explained to her that, you know, I, I can't guarantee I'm going to win, but luckily I was fortunate to win and have the experience of serving three terms, which of course is exponentially better. But I'm, I'm glad I took the risk. And for me, the worst case scenario would have been to not do it and just live the rest of my life wondering what if. If you look at race by race, it was close. The cumulative effect, however, was not too close. It was a thumping. Even the president could not find a silver lining this time as Democrats. One of the things that struck me immediately after my election was, again, I had campaigned as a centrist and somebody who was going to work with both sides and be a moderate politically uh, and organize labor and some of the more left-leaning social activist groups formed a political action committee right at the beginning of this new Congress. So the Democrats retake Congress, very similar to the situation in the country today. They win the House back. Nancy Pelosi is the new speaker. And immediately, these outside groups from the left form a political action committee announcing that they are going to run primaries against Democrats who don't follow line by line the Democratic agenda as put forward by Speaker Pelosi. What do your kids, our congressmen, and mercury poisoning have in common? More than you might think. You see, after taking $126,000 from utility companies, Congressman Jason Altmaier voted to block the enforcement of a vital mercury pollution law. So uh, that was a big red flag for me right from the start, that there, there might be a little bit of a difference of opinion on the direction that I was going to take as a representative. What purpose does Pennsylvania rise? I ask unanimous consent to address the House for one minute. Without objection, so ordered. Mr. Speaker, with the clock tick, tick, ticking away towards a default on our financial obligations for the first time in American history, we need to come together to find bipartisan solutions. It's time to stop holding America. Mr. Speaker, last night the Senate did what great deliberative bodies are supposed to do. They worked together. They compromised. They accommodated other points of view, and they got the job done. Mr. Speaker, with each House of Congress finally preparing to bring a health care bill to the floor, we are now closer to reform than we have been in decades. 
And while we still have a few hurdles to jump before the finish line, there are major issues on which there is widespread agreement. So what can the American Speaker Pelosi completely understood that her power, her time in leadership was driven by people from the center. The, that election was won because independent voters who had previously voted Republican all across the country were dissatisfied and they switched their votes to Democratic candidates. It wasn't driven by a leftward wave of the party electing all of these people from the far left. She knew, Speaker Pelosi knew, that if she lost those seats in the next election, if those centrist candidates were unsuccessful, she was going to lose power. That ended up being premonition because that's exactly what happened four years later in 2010 when she drove the agenda a little bit too far to the left. Tonight we will be saying aloha to the Republicans and aloha to the Democrats. <laughs> The Republicans will indeed regain control of the United States House of Representatives, and that on the House side is that. Away in the GOP tidal wave that's brought a new leadership to Congress. Uh, I can tell you that, you know, some election nights are more fun than others. So I was in a, a difficult position knowing that I was going to have to cast some votes that were out of sync with where the Democratic Party wanted me to be. But I was always comfortable that I was representing the district and that's who I was elected to represent. But Altmaier's centrist leanings soon bumped up against an uncomfortable political reality. Redistricting was on the horizon. When I took office after the 2006 election, I immediately recognized that it was only going to be a couple more years, four more years, um, before the census occurred. Hi, I'm Carl Rove. One of my favorite founders is James Madison, principal author of the Constitution. He created an instrument of democracy by writing into the Constitution a requirement for a census every 10 years to ensure fair representation in Congress. Hi, I'm here from the U.S. Census Bureau. Please answer the 10 easy questions. They're almost the same ones Madison helped write for the first census back in 1790. Learn more at 2010census.gov. Thank you. Pennsylvania was already at that time projected to lose at least one seat because of the population being stagnant. Pennsylvania is always one of the losers in, in uh, reapportionment after the census. So while Florida, Texas, Utah, Arizona, those states gained seats, states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, New Jersey, Massachusetts, New York, they lose seats. I knew as the process was going along that I was the one that had the target. I started to hear rumors about how I was going to be a short-termer because they were going to gerrymander my seat or redistrict me out of the seat. And so Pennsylvania lost a seat. The Republican-led legislature, of course, has free reign on determining how they're going to draw the lines and who's going to be the loser in this game of musical chairs. Uh, and it turned out that they decided uh, there were seven Democrats in the congressional delegation at the time. I was the one who was uh, more likely to be able to win in Republican districts. I, I, I held a seat that was a heavily Republican-leaning, by performance, district. Uh, in 2008, President Obama lost my district by 11 points. And in that same election, I won by 12 points. So if they were going to find a way to gerrymander the district to get rid of me, 
it wasn't going to necessarily be to make the district more Republican because I had proven I could win by large margins in Republican districts. So how was the other party going to plaster that target on Altmaier's back? Listen carefully here. The strategy was subtle and not what you usually think of when you hear the term gerrymandering. So they took a different route. They merged my district with a neighboring Democratic district and made, they actually made my district more Democratic than it had been before. So they knew if they put me in position where I had to win a contested primary, given the fact that I had a centrist voting record, that was going to put me in a difficult position. So they merged me with another sitting Democratic member of Congress, and the primary played out exactly as the Republicans would have wanted. The people on the far left who were unhappy with my voting record as a moderate and a centrist uh, turned out for my opponent who won in the primary. He beat me in a very close primary, 51 to 49. But then he moved on to the general and was running in a district that he was completely unfamiliar with as far as having to appeal to conservative Democrats and more moderate Republican voters to have any chance to win. He, he had been in a Democratic-leaning district where he had only had to talk the Democratic talking points, and he ended up losing in the general election. So the Republicans drew us both into one district in a district where the Republican ended up winning the overall district. So they got rid of both of us. Altmaier has had some time to distill lessons from that loss and to write them down in his book, Dead Center. He summarized some of them for us this way. If you are a centrist or a moderate in a district that is overwhelmingly partisan, either Republican or Democrat, red or blue, you really don't have a chance to win in that type of seat. And this continues to be one of the divisions that we see in the country. With polarization, the people who are voting are the people who inhabit the political extremes. So if you're honest with yourself about where you are on issues, uh, assuming you're, you're honest with the voters, they're not going to buy into your message because that is not what partisans want to hear. They don't want to hear about working with the other side and being bipartisan. They want to hear about winning. We will have so much winning if I get elected that you may get bored with winning. Believe me, I agree. You'll never get bored with winning. We never get bored. And their side prevailing and making the other political party look bad. That's the thing that you find in Congress is it's, it's not about working together. It's about what can we do as a party to put the other side in a bad position, to force them into a politically difficult vote or, or to put them in position where they have to respond to questions that put them in an awkward situation. And that's not what it should be about. It should be about working together. But in these overwhelmingly partisan districts, that is not what primary voters want to hear. Dead Center is essentially a book-length meditation on how that situation developed, the damage it does, and how to fix it. The interesting thing about writing a book and going through the research on the issues that you're going to write about is sometimes it changes your opinion on the impact of different things. And as somebody who lost my seat in Congress, in large part because of gerrymandering, of course I went in with a bias thinking, well, gerrymandering is clearly 
uh, if not the biggest problem, then, then one of the biggest. And what you find is the people uh, who are drawing the lines, of course, are drawing them for political reasons in most states. And the impact is long-lasting, at least 10 years, uh, because that, that's the time frame of, of when the, the gerrymandering takes place. But it's made a lot easier by a lot of these other issues. The fact, as I said, that people sort themselves into like-minded communities and you can draw the lines in a way that capture people from the opposing party all in one district and then spread out your own party's voters across more districts, giving your party a majority in more districts. Uh, and the, the ease with which technology has made the ability to do that through micro-targeting and precision software that'll draw neighborhood by neighborhood and house by house. And what you find is, I think for the benefit of the country, gerrymandering and the way they draw the seats uh, should be changed because it changes the type of representative that you're sending to Congress. And one of the questions I get asked is, why is there so much partisanship in Congress? And the answer is because we elect partisans. The system is designed to elect and protect people on the political extreme. And if you have a district like I had that was relatively evenly split and you heard from both sides, when I had a town hall meeting, I heard different points of view and I had the benefit of hearing two sides to an issue and taking that with me to Washington. And it also forced me to work harder, to to be everywhere and to appeal to different groups of people and to really think through where I was going to be on an issue or on a message. Most seats, about 90% of the seats in the Congress are represented by people who are in safe seats that are never in jeopardy of losing their election. And what that does is changes the way they view their job. When they go to their town hall meetings all they hear is right on, keep doing what you're doing, and don't you dare compromise. And when they get to Washington and they see somebody that has a different point of view, they can't believe it. To them, everyone they know believes what they believe. They can't believe that, there's, that there even is a different side to the issue. And how could somebody possibly believe that? So it, it really does define the type of representative that you have just based upon that one act of how you draw the line to set the district. Now, listen carefully to what Altmaier says next. It's the key to why gridlock is so common in the modern Congress and to why narrow special interests often wield outsized sway. The people who are inhabiting those political gerrymandered districts, the overwhelmingly partisan districts, their only threat is in the primary. And if they don't position themselves to appeal to the party extremes that vote, they're in danger of losing their elections. Mr. Chairman, the federal government is broke. We borrow nearly 40 cents of every dollar we spend. Our Eric Cantor is famously is one of those people. The House, at the time, majority leader, uh, lost his seat. Uh, many people expected he would be the next speaker. 
begin, though, with the major political upset for one of the most powerful Republicans in the country, Eric Cantor, the number two GOP lawmaker in the House, beaten in the primary by a Tea Party candidate. Yep, that's right. Cantor lost. We just had a similar situation in New York where Congressman Crowley uh, famously lost to somebody who now is, is on the national scene as, as a member of the Democratic Socialist Party. She's looking at herself on television right now. How are you feeling? Can you put it into words? Nope. <laughs> Even for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a stunning result. The 28-year-old That's the danger that you run. Even if you're in a district that's overwhelmingly partisan and favoring your own political party, you're in danger of being taken out by somebody more extreme than you are. The effectiveness in gerrymandering and, and the detriment that it plays to Democratic representation is directly related to the way individual states elect their national leaders. And in Pennsylvania, the independents can't participate in primaries. They're closed primaries where only Republicans can vote in the Republican primary and only Democrats can vote in the Democratic primary. And the problem with that is, as I said, the people on the far extremes disproportionately show up in those primaries. So if you're a candidate running for office, if you want to have any chance to win, you have to appeal to those extremes. And in gerrymandering, when you have that in tandem with a closed primary system, you are guaranteeing that candidates in future political races are going to gravitate to the extreme because that is the only chance they have to win. Unfortunately, don't hold your breath waiting for the traditional parties to embrace the logical fixes. And reform is even harder in the Keystone State than elsewhere. Altmeyer explains. California has gone to a system of open primaries in addition to gerrymandering reform as well. And what you have found is the open primary system that they have where all political candidates are in the same primary and all political registrants can vote. Every, every political party shows up at the same primary. That is the one issue that has brought the Republicans and the Democrats together in California, and they're together in opposition to it because they hate the fact that the parties have lost control of the process. And it has worked. It has reduced polarization both in Sacramento and in the congressional delegation in Washington. It has forced members of Congress to listen to both sides of an issue and to appeal to people beyond their own political extreme. The reason open primaries have been instituted in states like California, the state of Washington, it's, it's gaining momentum in the state of Florida. These are all states that have referendum possibilities where the citizens can get a ballot initiative on the ballot without having to go through the state legislature. The problem in Pennsylvania is the system of getting something passed as a constitutional amendment involves the legislature in successive sessions of, of, of the assembly. So getting politicians to vote against their own self-interest, to vote to make their own elections more competitive is not something you're going to be very successful in getting politicians to do very often. So you have to make the case that it's to the benefit of the people in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. It's worked in other states that have tried it, and it most importantly provides much more proportional representation to the vast majority of the Commonwealth who are people that just want 
a Congress that can work together, that can compromise and can accommodate different points of view and get things done. Welcome back. There was, of course, a spark of bipartisanship today at Capitol Hill, but most days the partisanship in Washington feels as if it just keeps getting worse. If there ever was a true political center, former Democratic Congressman Jason Altmaier of Pennsylvania might be close to it. He's boasted that... When I left Congress, I went back into health care, but I felt passionately about these issues, and I wrote a book about uh, political polarization, describing what leads to polarization and offering some solutions. And I'm so glad that I did, because obviously the country has become even more polarized over the past few years. So that's what I'm doing now is just talking about what we can do to reduce the level of polarization in America. So that's the Jason Altmaier story. His painfully earned wisdom teaches how the gerrymander can be wielded to punish the moderate lawmaker willing to compromise. It explains why in state capitals and in Washington, gridlock and hyperpartisanship are on the rise, solution building on the decline. It suggests why narrowly ideological lobbies wield such power in the hallways of modern legislatures. And it demonstrates just how many different tools are in the gerrymandering toolbox. Sometimes the smartest strategy is to jigger the primary electorate, not the general election one. But at Draw the Lines, we want to be clear. As striking and distressing as Altmaier's experience may seem, it's not cause for apathy or despair. It's a call to action. Here's how we frame it. When you think about it, an election is just a job interview. What if you were hiring for a job and scheduled a set of interviews with a candidate? And what if the day before the scheduled time, that candidate called you up and said something like this? Uh, yeah, you know, about that interview tomorrow, I'd uh, like to hold it at my place, not yours. And some of the people on your list that I'm supposed to talk to, I'd prefer to scratch them, just not my types. And I just emailed you a list of the questions that I'm willing to answer. And also a second list. On that one, there's the names of the other people you're allowed to interview for this job. I happen to know they're not particularly qualified, so basically, I get the job. Okay? Yeah. So if you got that call, what would you do? This is what you'd do. You'd drop that resume in the circular file, cancel the interview, and wish that jerk luck with future endeavors. You sure wouldn't put up with such nonsense. But isn't that exactly what we, the voters, the bosses of democracy, do when we let the incumbent politicians, the most self-interested people in the world, call the shots in that job interview known as an election? And no factor in that interview is more critical, more consequential than the shape of the election district and the identity of the voters living inside it. The incumbents, the people whose jobs are at stake, are the very last people we should be entrusting that task to. It makes no sense to have a system where the politicians pick their voters rather than the voters picking their politicians. Particularly when, for the first time in the history of this republic, it's easy and cheap to put the needed digital mapping tools in the hands of every voter, indeed every student, in the Commonwealth. That's what the Draw the Lines PA program has set out to do with its district builder tool and its twice yearly mapping competitions. We'll give you more detail on those in a future episode. For now, you can find out more at drawthelinespa.org. So that's it for this, the first episode of the Draw the Lines podcast. Our thanks to Jason Altmaier for sharing his time and story with us. His book again is titled Dead Center, and it's available on Amazon. 
Draw the Lines is a production of the Committee of 70, a nonpartisan, nonprofit good government group based in the birthplace of democracy, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Our producer is Joel Patterson. This episode was recorded both at the studios of WXPN Public Radio in Philly and at Kelly Writer's House on the University of Pennsylvania campus. Thanks to Mike Vasilikos of WXBN and to Zach Cardner of Writer's House for all their help on this project. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. This podcast is made possible by grants from the William Penn Foundation, the Hillman Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments. In the next episode of our podcast, we'll talk to Brian Miller, a gun violence prevention advocate whose life has been complicated tremendously by the gerrymander. So until then, let me leave you with this thought. It is our house. It should be our mouse. Let us slay the gerrymander.